This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 511 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. 
So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 332 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome Ethan Suplee. Now, you probably recognize Ethan for his roles in My Name is Earl, American History X, uh, Remember the Titans, but he has also gained a lot of recognition recently for the incredible transformation he's made with his own health. So he was very, very heavy at one point, lost a huge amount of weight, ended up gaining it partly to get some of the roles that he used to play, and then now has reclaimed it again. So, so much great information on his nutritional journey, on his fitness journey, on the psychological elements, and so, so many more. So you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Before we get to the interview, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make this podcast more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then, as I mentioned every week, this is a free library for you, the audience. You can use it individually. You can use it in your department or your company. All I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories because there are people all over this planet that need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ethan Suplee. Enjoy. Ethan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for agreeing to come on. I know that uh, Byron Rogers was on your show and he connected us, but welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Brilliant. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Los Angeles, California. Beautiful. Now, how is that looking amidst the COVID crisis that we're in at the moment? Uh, you know, all these things are relative i think that um you know i understand the state's reaction to the initial kind of non-understanding of what we were facing and then certainly when new york got uh kind of sideswiped by it i understand but we've we've just shut down again um uh, due to an increased number of detected infections. And then the, the news will kind of cite along with that uh, uh, a height of hospitalizations and give those two stats together as though they're correlated. But when you look into it, a lot of the, or some huge percentage of the, pop, of the, of the hospitalizations are due to people who were not, who were expressly not going to the hospital during the first lockdown and kind of the lockdown ended and they all were like, well, we got to go to the hospital now. And so uh, some massive percentage of current hospitalizations have nothing to do with COVID. So, I, I mean, look, I don't know. I don't think that Los Angeles is really uh, quite as susceptible as to, to this as New York, certainly, because we don't have tr uh, public transport transportation kind of in the same way that New York does. And we're, we're not all living on top of each other, but you know, we, we, we definitely have a, a mild case of it, I think. 
Yeah. Well, it's been interesting for me because I've had friends literally over the world. I was talking to a fireman in um, Sweden about, you know, we're kind of demonizing them at the moment, how irresponsible they are and all this stuff. And hearing it from a Swede, you know, they, they just kind of stood in the middle of the road. They were like, yeah, well, we will social distance and, and you know, wear masks where appropriate. But we're not going to shut down the entire economy either. And when you look at it, apples for apples, you know, they they have had relatively sim- similar numbers to us per capita and we shut the entire country down so you know I, as a medic as a fireman we we get to see behind the scenes we get to see how many people die anyway and it's not belittling any deaths we get to see how overrun hospitals are in inner cities 365 days a year right. so you know what was being portrayed in some of these news stations on social media versus what is actually the truth I think is is a you know there's a disconnection there but I think what we're going to talk about is the true life-saving element like we have an you know obesity and ill health epidemic in this country that no one seemed to really want to put any effort into helping prevent um so you know that's why I'm excited to talk about um a factor that people can control in their lives yeah right this is this you know I think there that we could we could take any point of view we want but and and that i think in the reality is that the um the 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 deck is kind of stacked against you in the current landscape of how americans eat um as far as like health and fitness go but uh but that it's all possible to do and to to take a to get up and and do something about it is is uh, righteous in my opinion or it has been for me at least no, and I agree a hundred percent. So I would love to start at the very beginning because I know your your story goes you know very very early, doesn't it? So where were you actually born? And then tell me about your family dynamic. How many siblings and what your mother and father actually did for a living? I was born in New York um, in the seventies, and uh, my mother and father. My mother and father met in college in Pittsburgh. They were drama majors at the uh, at Carnegie Mellon University, which is, has a big drama department. And then they moved to New York and they were stage actors for for about 10 years prior to me coming along. And and when I was born, they they didn't like the lifestyle for raising a kid. You know, they would be out touring shows most of the year, usually different shows. I mean, almost in entirely different shows and so weren't actually able to spend a lot of time together and so they kind of quit doing that my father became a a painting contractor and my mother became a housewife and we moved out to los angeles not long after and um and then my sister was born and and that was that was it there were four of us brilliant now you mentioned in some of the you know your own podcasts even that you know the the weight gain happened pretty early on. So do now, you know, looking back in discussions with your parents, do you attribute any kind of poor nutritional choices in your first formative years for contributing to that? Or was there truly like a hormonal or some you know, other metabolic challenge that you were going through? You know, I've, I've, I've analyzed this a lot. And, and, Honestly, when I get down to the root of where I can locate my problem starting, I was about five and my grandparents lived in Vermont and I went for a summer to visit them on my own. It was the first time I'd been away from my parents and I went off on this trip to 
hang out with my grandparents. And I kind of arrived to them and I remember them. And, and prior to this, I'd had no attention on my body. I never thought of it. And I had this big reaction from them, um, kind of not freaking out, but they were just startled and with my weight. Now, when I, if I look at a picture of myself when I'm five today, I don't even, I, I look at that kid and I'm like, Jesus, that's what they were freaking out about because I wasn't, I wasn't obese. I wasn't even chubby. I just had maybe, you know, a couple extra percent of excess body fat, which I think is actually pretty normal for, for kids. They, they kind of uh, put on a little weight and then grow tall and put on a little weight, you know, and, and I'm not diminishing there, there is an obesity crisis amongst children today too, but it wasn't that. So my grandparents put me on a diet at five and restricted my food and made me weigh myself every day and were very, um, hell bent on getting me to kind of discover that there was this problem with my body. Now, my reaction to this was to begin sneaking food, which I kind of carried on for the rest of my life. And, and it became super detrimental later in life when I even would, um, you know, want to lose weight, but was kind of stuck in this um, pattern of eating alone, not letting people watch me eat and being kind of, uh, you know, this, eating food became like this bad thing I was doing to myself and I would do it privately and I would, and it, and it just got out of hand. And so, um, you know, by the time I was 10, I was legitimately overweight and, uh, and then I was just made by my parents to go on diet after diet. Um, and I continued to sneak food. And, uh, and then by the time I was an adult and on my own, it was just this battle that was kind of insurmountable, if that makes sense. No, it does completely. And, and it's interesting because I heard you, you tell that story about um, being five. But when you're describing it now, I, I agree 100%. There's a lot of kids that I can think of growing up that, you know, were a little quote unquote chubby and then grew into these lean, you know, young men. But to the relationship with food uh, psychologically really seems to factor in, you know, whether it's bulimia, whether it's sort of obesity. Um, and it seems like there was an element of shame. Like there was uh, even, you know, for your, your five-year-old mind, which obviously is still developing, that there was a, the irresponsibility attached to eating. And I can see how that would have completely skewed your perspective of that experience from then onwards. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's very tough for me because at the end of the day, I I believe that the only power for us to change or improve ourselves exists within us. And I, and I could apply that anywhere in life. And that's just true for me. Um, but I do look back to being a, a kid and going you know, it really sucks that my reaction to this thing that I think they were well intended by was so far in the other direction that it kind of screwed my life up, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know how to solve that issue at five years old. 
Yeah. So, so moving on from that, then, what did your eating look like in your school years that you know resulted in such a rapid weight gain? I just kind of, you know, it wasn't even so much eating at school. I definitely would eat at school, but but I was always kind of incom- uncomfortable uh, eating in front of people. So the majority of my eating would happen at night at home, um, you know, uh, and, and I got quite good certainly after I was 10 because, uh, when I was 10, my father like gave me this ultimatum. Like if you get to 200 pounds, I'm controlling what you eat. I'm going to put you on a diet. And that happened. I got to 200 pounds and, and he gave, put his best foot forward at, at like governing my food. And, um, I just would, you know, as I cleared my plate, I would be grabbing food in the kitchen and stuffing it in my mouth and swallowing it. And I just got very, very good at kind of sneaking food, um, whenever I could. Uh, it, I think it, it wasn't really, I mean, it was all not, it wasn't a good scene, but when I, when I became autonomous, when I had a car and I, and I was working, and I had some money, um, it was really, it got really into like the dangerous area because I would just, you know, um, eat fast food, go to drive throughs like constantly. That was like the main source of food for me. Yeah, I've had that exact same observation with my bonus boy, my stepson. And luckily, he has kind of found himself in the... I wouldn't even say fitness space, more bodybuilding, but sensible bodybuilding at the moment. But watching, you know, looking at the rappers that are in the, the rubbish bin outside when I go to take them out, um, you know, there is a lot of fast food. And I think that a lot of us did that. One day when you are earning money and you have a vehicle, you're like, oh shit, all these things that were quote unquote treats or, you know, a rarity, I can literally go and have every day. And some people have the metabolism to be able to get away with it, at least till they get a little bit older. And some obviously don't. And, and that that causes a rapid rate gain in the uh, the teenage years. Yeah. And, you know, even as a kid, um, I wasn't ever really uh, doing what I was telling my parents I was doing. But, but if they believed that I'd had a successful week of dieting, often the the reward for that was a trip through a drive through or you know to jack in the box or mcdonald's or whatever it might be um and and so it was this kind of bizarre thing of like we're going to withhold food and then re- reward the withholding of food with more food and then you know it, it there was just a lot of attention placed on food and and how i ate there was very little uh, attention placed on my physical activity and I was very inactive. I didn't participate in sports. I basically just avoided PE in school. Um, it, it was, it was not great. I also never really understood the function of food. I never knew what protein did for you. I never knew what carbohydrates did for you. I never knew the function of fat. I never had any real idea of what my body required to exist and, and what putting excess fuel in it did. Um, I knew generally that basically everything I ate was to be considered 
uh, excess or bad. Um, but I, and you know, I just, it just all had this connotation to it that wasn't based in real educated, um, information. Right. Now, aside from, from the relationship with food itself, I had a, a author on, um, Johan Hari who, detailed a whole bunch of areas it's more on the mental health side and addiction side but one was on a study and i'll be very quick with this um with a group of morbidly obese people they put them on basically drips for all the nutrients that they needed and they lost a whole bunch of weight and then one of their star pupils as it were fell off the wagon and ended up eating well long story short it came out that Literally about 75% of this group had some sort of childhood trauma. And especially for the women in the group, the obesity basically was a defense mechanism. So they were not attractive because some of these, you know, predators that have been in their lives had abused them. So, you know, the, the, the link between some sort of childhood trauma and obesity, I think, is one that's not discussed very much. You already identified, you know, the one element psychologically. Were there any things looking back additionally to that that you can attribute to it? No, and I've thought about that a lot. I don't have anything more than just, you know, and, and, and I suspect whatever it was with me had probably begun prior to my trip to visit my grandparents, you know, at five, you're not totally cognizant of what's going on at all times. I think, you know, with the broad, at least as far as adults go. Um, so I don't know if I was already a little bit too much for my parents to deal with. And I was being sent for the summer to give them a break or do you know what I mean? But, but I, I can't, I can't cite any actual trauma, you know, that I would actually, you know, not really attribute to yeah okay well you mentioned about not being um you know attracted to pee and i think that's one of the the things that adds another layer for you know some of these kids that either are, are very physically frail if you like or you know the other side obese is that you do get that tribal element of and that camaraderie within the the team sports in school so that adds another layer of isolation but i heard you mention skateboarding was that when you were still at the school age or was that older um, skateboarding. I mean, I, 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 I liked the culture of skateboarding. I tried to skateboard a couple of times, but I was never a proper skateboarder. Um, that was, I, you know, I kind of started to have a really rough time at school when I was 11, 12 years old and started to, you know, ditch school at 13. And by the time I was 14, I just, I just stopped going altogether. And, um, and I definitely was like all my friends were skateboarder and, and the aesthetics of it I liked and the music associated with it I liked, but I was never really a skateboarder. So I wasn't even getting that kind of uh, physical gratification out of life, you know? Yeah. Well, what about career aspirations? So you're working your way through the school years. What were you hoping to be when you graduated or, or didn't graduate either way? Yeah, I, I had this idea at around 10 that I would be a doctor. And I remember kind of sticking with that and doing and, and kind of being interested in biology and, and all the science courses I found to be fascinating. And then by the time I was 14, I had no aspirations at all. Um, and a buddy of mine was an actor and 
due to that, I went with him to work one day and he kind of, it was this kind of marvelous thing that he got to just like avoid school altogether, which I thought was awesome. And so I thought, well, this will be a good job for me just simply because it got me out of school. Um, uh, but it took me a couple of years to actually start pursuing that. Right. So what was it that, that made you so good? I mean, you've been in some of the, the best films, you know, that I've ever watched. I mean, American History X and Remember the Titans and some of these other ones. So lead me through your, your acting skills side. Uh, the skills, I, I don't know. I, I think that just my, I, 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 I do try and practice the ability to assume different points of view. Um, you know, as of today, it's mostly in philosophical terms, but I think that that's also quite useful as an actor. Um, and so I, I might have some slight innate ability to do that, but I think that that's kind of the whole game of acting is just to be able to assume a different point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm a, I do stunts on the side and I, I'm, the only role I'd ever be able to fulfill successfully in the acting world is a piece of plywood. I'm just <laughs> absolutely yeah. awful at acting. So I'm always curious. Um, well, you've been quite open about, you know, the addiction as well. So as you were starting to get these roles, at what point did, um, you know, did substances other than food start coming into your life? Pretty, uh, pretty quickly. I mean, they, and they actually even started, um, properly before that, uh, prior to even working as an actor, but I, I, I was using drugs and alcohol right, right up until, um, 2001. And I was, uh, either 23 or no, probably 24 at this point. And I, and I, and I then finally got sober, but you know, it was, uh, from like 94 to 2001. So like I had a six, seven year run of, of working and being, um, you know, pretty, pretty decently down the drain of a drug addict. Yeah. Well, and you hear so many tragic stories and, and I'm going to ask you if it's okay to, to, to kind of recall one of them as a lot of people listening are in the first responder community, we have, you know, seen either the, the addict that's already passed away is nothing we can do, or we've, we've managed to catch them with Narcan or something and, and managed to pull them away from the depths. But you actually had an experience yourself having to do CPR. Yeah, that I, I don't even know if Narcan existed then. I, I mean, I, I had never heard of it. And, and maybe the paramedics had it, I have no idea. But I was, um, you know, in the 90s, there were doctors you would go and visit and you would kind of pay them off for a prescription for pills and you and you would uh and i was in visiting the doctor and getting my drugs from him and the guy who i was there with went to use the bathroom and it was one of one of these buildings where the bathroom is out in the hall and it's shared with the other offices on that floor. And it just happened to be that that floor was just a doctor's office and across the hall was like a, a uh, some kind of a talent agency. And somebody from the talent agency, there was like a commotion out in the waiting room and, and then the nurse ran in and said, somebody has collapsed in the bathroom. And so we ran out and it was my buddy and he had OD'd in the bathroom and somebody from the talent agency had found him and run into the doctor's office. And, and, and the doctor, I, I believe, um, 
partially scared that he was about to have get caught in the midst of, you know, basically being a, a drug dealer. Um, he collapsed. And so he was like <laughs> freaking out. And, and then my buddies here OD'd and I had to do CPR on him until the, uh, the, the paramedics came, uh, that friend since OD'd not, not too much later than that. I mean, he, he didn't die in that instance. He, he, he was okay. He, the paramedics came and he spent a couple hours in the hospital and then he got out and, uh, maybe a year later he OD'd and, and didn't make it. But, uh, but that was like, I, I hadn't heard of Narcan, Narcan at that point. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is addiction has so many faces, whether it's opiates, whether it's alcohol, social media, gambling, you know, food. And you know, sadly, they're always labeled at that. Oh, you're, you know, you're obese, you're an overeater, or, you know, you're, you're a, a cheater or, you know, whatever label it is. And, and the very, very little, uh, time is ever spent analyzing, well, why is this person leaning on food, on opiates? What are they escaping? What, which void are they trying to fill? And I, and I think if we shifted focus to that, we would save a huge amount of lives. Yeah, I agree. Right. Well, I agree. Well, did that experience jolt you in any way or, or was it something else that finally led you out of your own personal addiction? Yeah, no, that, that experience unfortunately did not jolt me. Um, you know, I, 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 it was actually a couple of years later that I, I was morbidly obese. I had really, really declined liver function. Um, uh, my lipid panels were insane and, uh, my ankles had started swelling and then the swelling was moving up my legs. And I went to a doctor and the doctor said, this is congestive heart failure and and I remember and and the doctor was like I don't even have to check I can tell you're using drugs and you should maybe consider stopping and I didn't and I and I spent the next couple of days doing drugs and the the swelling just kept moving up my legs it was a very very odd thing you know like my feet were swollen and then the next day my feet and my ankles were swollen and then the next day my feet and my ankles and my calves were swollen and then the next day my knees were swollen. It was a really odd thing and I just was going to bed every night thinking, well, I'll probably die tonight and I just didn't really care. It wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was a terribly upsetting thought to me and I woke up one day thinking, what a shitty way to live. Um, I'm going to, even if I don't survive whatever's happening to me right now, I'm going to, I'm going to get off these drugs. And, and I did, um, I, I, I wasn't thinking at all about, it wasn't like I'm going to save my life. I don't even think I was up to feeling that way. I just didn't want to drop, die in such a pitiful manner, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, looking back, I mean, you know, like you said, not being, you know, not, not, recognizing a huge amount of trauma per se why do you think the value of your own life was so diminished by the time you got to that point you know i really think that drugs can numb you out to stuff and for me um in the beginning uh, and and i guess this just was persistent that the 
the experience of doing drugs was so much better than the experience of life without drugs that um, it just kind of was like not even a question of like do drugs or don't do drugs. It was, it was like, um, I, you know, so I, I, but by the time I got to that point, I was just so addled by them that I think, you know, it just runs you down and you start to not care about anything. And and what worked as far as getting you off after so many years of taking them? You know, I think that confronting the fact that I really wasn't capable of, because, I, you know, in that time period, there were many times that I would go like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I would go clean for a couple of days and be miserable and, 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 you know, not able to sleep and, and, uh, jittery legs and my skin didn't feel right. And, and, and then I would just start doing them again. And so I think the, the point when, um, when it, when it really kind of clicked was the point when I had to really look at the fact that it was beyond my control and, and I really needed, um, to not be responsible for myself for a minute and to recognize that I was incapable in that moment of being responsible for myself. And I had to go and seek help. And, and there are a lot of, you know, great resources for people in need of help to get help. And, 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 uh, and, you know, I've, I, I would say I'm in a much different state today than I was back then it's been almost 20 years and 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 you know i think with time and learning how to avoid um the pitfalls of life and really confronting what's going on in the moment and uh you you, you can build up kind of more of a tolerance for life than you have in that fragile state of like two days sober if that makes sense no. you know it does. Yeah. They, they, in the, in the first month I would never go, you know, on a wine tasting trip and expect to stay sober. But as of the last even 10 years, I can go with my wife to Tuscany and well, I don't know if we're even able to do that today, but you know, in the past prior to the world ending as it has, um, we go to Tuscany and she does wine tasting and I, sample their olive oils because all these vintners make olive oil too. Um, and it, and it's not a problem and I don't feel really drawn to it anymore, but that took a lot of time and a lot of effort and not listening to myself in the beginning and really getting my under me before I started to take back some of that responsibility. I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's so rampant in, you know, the associated professions that listen, fire, police, EMS, dispatch, and it may not be in the face, in the, the guise of opiates, a lot more uh, often it's going to be alcohol. But, you know, many of us find ourselves in the same place. There's sleep deprivation. There's obviously, you know, some of the things that we actually witness. There's, you know, failed relationships. And, and you know, I've got a very, very close friend that did rehab twice and failed twice. And then it was the third time and he was literally going to take his own life if it didn't work. And thank God the right combination of people were there at the right time. And now he's two years sober and leading a sober kind of CrossFit group that meets every week. So, 
I'm so no, glad that amazing. you, yeah. And, but, but it's people like you being so courageous telling their story that I think opens the doors for a lot of people that think they should be shamed into the shadows, which is so far from the truth. Yeah. Well, I, I did, I did, I did have to, um, go to rehab a couple of times. And I will say the first, the first time, the first two times, it was not really my idea. And, um, and, and this is kind of like this, almost the same kind of mindset I think is, is true for weight loss. And, and, but, but the day I woke up and said, I'm going to do this and I can't do it by myself and I need help. That was kind of the day that my life started turning around. And the, the real tricky thing about it is, is I definitely think there were external inspirational things, but there was not a single point where somebody having a conversation with me could get me to the point of making that determination for myself. Does that make sense? No, it does. Yeah. I mean, you have to be ready yourself. And I think that's, that's the problem with a lot of dialogue about addiction, about obesity, all these things is one camp will be like, Oh, it's the individual. They should take, you know, just take control of their life and, and stop eating so much. And then there's the other side is kind of almost the, I guess the, the, the victim mentality where it's always someone else's fault. It's society's fault. But the reality is just like with the COVID thing, it's the middle ground. Like, yes, there has to be an element of responsibility, but if you create an environment of people to fail, then that self-realization is going to be far less likely. But if we can create an environment where our school kids are taught about the human body and given nourishing food and taught how to cook, the chances of that next generation, you know, struggling with their weight is a lot less. Whereas if yeah. you like you and I grew up with pretty much the same age, you know, if it's pizza and hot dogs and burgers every day for, at school and you never learn about the human body, you're kind of set up for failure, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really tricky thing to navigate. Yeah. Well, so you overcame the drugs. I want to get to, you know, to the weight loss and, and the incredible transformation. Just before we do that, you know, a lot of the roles were for bigger people, you know, and remember the Titans, you were, you were, you know, one of the, uh, the football players. How, how success, excuse me, how successful were you being the size you were in the casting? Yeah, that, uh, that added another factor. And, and that was something I really didn't think about um going into it uh, but i will say the the day i decided to lose weight i was over 500 pounds um i had i had uh, weighed myself um maybe six months prior on a on a freight scale because scales didn't go that high and i and i clocked in at 536 and i had not gone on a diet since then and so i I assume I weighed more than that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I just was like done with it. You know, listen, I could, I could at, at 300 pounds, I'm still overweight and the big guy. So I, I feel like there was a huge space and certainly years and years after that initial decision where I was still able to fill that role in Hollywood. Um, and you know, even today, I think if I put on a shirt, that's a size too big, I, I don't look at myself and see a fit guy. I see a fat guy. And so I don't know if that's the same perception that other people have, but, um, 
I'm 260 pounds now. I've got a very, very low body fat percentage, but I'm still, as far as, you know, the BMI is concerned, I'm overweight. Um, but I, I kind of, I did go too far into an extreme. And by the time we arrived at like 2012, I weighed 200 pounds and, uh, and was also very, very lean and, and, and felt uncomfortable at that size. Um, and made the decision not long after that to gain weight intentionally. Um, but I enjoyed lifting weights at the time and I thought I would stay healthy and just eat whatever I want. And I went back up to about 400 pounds and, uh, and then I tore my bicep at work and had to have this operation. And the doctors assured me that it was like an outpatient thing. They knock you out, they do it quickly and you come out and then they weighed me and they were like, Oh, you're actually so heavy. You have to go into the hospital. And this is a much bigger deal of a surgery because of your weight. And my wife at that point was like, listen, I never gave you a hard time about your weight. I supported you getting thin. I supported you gaining weight again, but this is bullshit. I don't like this whole, like you just have to be healthy. So whatever that is that you don't have to go to a hospital for an outpatient procedure, that's the weight you have to be. And so and so I started dieting again with the intention of staying muscular and, and I've done a pretty good job of that. Yeah. Well, this is, how tall are you? Six one. Yeah. So for a start, the BMI is absolute bullshit. Coming from an exercise physiology background, if I'm not mistaken, it was created for um, uh, life insurance, you know, scales. But yeah, I mean, I know of people with, you know, I mean, single figure body fat but giant powerful you know athletes that are absolutely always morbidly obese on the bmi bmi is the biggest crock of shit so anyone out there listening to 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 measure up to that it it you know it's assuming that all humans are made linearly you know, as far as height and weight so um but with with your first journey I, mean, I think that's fascinating you went from 500 pounds to 200 i know cycling factored in so tell me about that journey yeah, I, I, well, it wasn't quite as uh, much of a straight line as I made it out to be. So I, I started dieting in 2002, towards the end of 2002. And, and then uh, I did My Name is Earl. I started doing My Name is Earl in 2005. And over the course of doing My Name is Earl, I put on about 100 pounds. So about the end of my name is Earl, I'm now close to 400 pounds again. And, uh, you know, I found myself when that ended with a ton of money and, and not a huge desire to jump right back into another television show. And, uh, I just got on a beach cruiser one day, you know, a really fat, tired bike. And, and we lived kind of in a canyon and I rode up to the top of the hill and I was able to do that. And I thought, wow, I really enjoyed that. And it was exercise. I'm going to keep doing that. And I kind of graduated to a, a mountain bike and then graduated to a road bike. And, and I got to the point where I was riding about eight hours a day, six days a week. You know, I went and rode the Tour de France during the Tour de France in 2010 or 11. And, um, 
you know, I rode up Mount Ventoux with Lance Armstrong and just did these crazy cycling trips. And that's all I cared about for a long time. And, and I didn't eat a lot of food and I got really, really thin. And, um, and then my wife said to me one day, like, Hey, you think you're, you can just retire and ride a bike and it's not true. You can't do that. You have to go back to work. And so, and then I started to like find other ways of exercising, but I did find that I enjoyed exercising. Now, looking back on that, cause I was thinking about this, listening to a couple of your other episodes. Um, I kind of, ha- I was on the other end of the spectrum as you, I was the very, very frail, small child, my mom used to read me The Ugly Duckling every night. <laughs> One day you'll be a beautiful swan. Just be patient. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I always had the kind of body dysmorphia from the opposite side. And I heard you saying, you know, that people didn't pick on you that much because, you you know, you'd fight them. Well, mine was the reverse. I couldn't. They'd whoop my ass every time. So, um, but what really was the change in my life is I did the whole bodybuilding thing, you know, put on a little bit of muscle, looked kind of athletic, but... It was when I just didn't give a shit anymore, but when I became a firefighter, because now my focus was to be a firefighter, to be able to pull someone out of a building, be able to throw the ladders and drag the hose and pull the, you know, the, the victims out. So it gave me a purpose. And then all of a sudden training shifted completely to not what I look like, but what I can do. And now a byproduct was, you know, there was an aesthetic side and that's, that's great. But it was about being able to save a life. Was that same thing kind of applicable to you on the bike? Did you finally realize that the you know the leaner you were, the better a cyclist you were, that you know the more you could perform on this sport that you now found yourself loving? Yes, certainly. There were there were these there were group rides and even races in Los Angeles, and and I remember there there I don't even know if they do this anymore i assume they did because they had been doing it for 20 years or something but it was the uh the nichols canyon ride on on sundays and you would all meet up and there'd be like a hundred dudes doing this bike ride sunday morning at like seven or eight a.m and you'd ride kind of through west los angeles and then go up a canyon and race across mohond and come down sepulveda and the first time i tried to do that ride uh, before we even got to the canyon, they were all gone, and I, I wasn't even really playing catch up. And uh, and I remember thinking like, how cool it would be if I could just even hang with the slower guys on that ride. And then I just found other group rides, and and you know I was never the fastest guy, but I but there was something about like not wanting people to wait for you too long at the top of the hill. And if we're talking about, you know, climbing four, 5,000 feet in a day, uh, on a bike, that's a lot of uphill. Um, and so you just, you know, you start to realize that the, the thinner you are, the, the more you're going to be able, the longer you're going to be able to last, the more, the harder you're going to be able to push. Um, and it definitely played into that. I didn't go into it thinking I want to be super thin, but the obsession with actually being thin um, certainly was born in, into me in that time period um, just because that's how people riding bicycles looked. Yeah, and I think that's something that's been lost kind of like the way, again, we were raised. Like you want to you wanna 
you know look good then you got to go in the gym and you got to do your three sets of 12 and you know take your creatine your protein powder and all these things that we were raised you know believing that's what makes someone healthy but i had a conversation with someone the other day who's who's struggling you know with their weight at the moment and they were kind of downplaying the fact that they were hiking instead of going to the gym and i was like well that's exactly what you should be doing then because you don't enjoy the gym you do enjoy hiking so hike whatever whatever passion you find that should be the focus from the movement side and then hopefully that will help uh, motivate you as you start chipping away at your nutritional choices to to then use whatever your love is as the the motivating factor to start eating better and changing you know your strength and, and endurance and mobility i couldn't agree more if you can find something you actually enjoy doing that doesn't require a lot of like external effort to get you to do it then you've you've won half the game yeah absolutely well i, I heard you mention about casting and, and i can kind of relate because uh, when I was in California, not as not even as an actor, as a glorified extra, basically, but I got a bunch of my firefighter friends into the World World Trade Center building, the Nicholas Cage, uh, the World Trade Center movie, excuse me. And when I collated all these firefighter friends of mine, they almost didn't use me because they said I looked too quote unquote Californian. Now, from an Eng- right. from an Englishman, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what do you mean? But again, it was the Hollywood stereotype of you want, you, know, you either kind of were like a redheaded the 19 or 1890s caricature of a firefighter with a giant mustache or you were puerto rican italian looking so i kind of got to see how actually unimaginative many of these casting directors can be now how did that factor into you going back to the industry as a svelte cyclist as far as you trying to get new roles for yourself i just kind of you know, it wasn't like um, it was just this thing of for for about a year. I was just saying no. Like, do you want to go audition for this or meet with people about this? And I just was saying no. And then might have even been more than a year. And then my wife kind of sat me down and was like, "You have to go work." And and uh, and I started saying yes. And so I did you know, mostly pilots. I did a few different pilots that none have got picked up. None of them got picked up. And so that's just kind of par for the course too. Like you never know with television. I didn't really do any movies when I was that thin. Um, but in the process of like returning to work and kind of putting the bike away, I still was interested in exercise so i went and tried different types of exercise and and found that i actually enjoyed lifting weights and so and that i could get kind of the same burst of endorphins or whatever it is the feeling of of uh, physical and mental clarity from an hour in the gym that i was like you know spending eight hours a day experiencing on a bicycle. And so I kind of traded those two things and started just lifting weights. Right. And but it was, it was, it was, there was nothing really that came out of that time. A few episodes of a TV show called Wilfred where I was very thin, but there's just a, a like a gap where all of my work was in pilots that nobody saw. Yeah. Cause I've, I've had a few people on that, yeah, they were the high school or college age, and they were, you know, force-fed almost philosophically to 
to make them the biggest linebacker, you know, or whatever role they were playing at the time. Um, and it, you know, there's some people that I've had on here that literally had to physically remove themselves from that environment because it was contributing to their ill health, whether it was a toxic environment mentally or physically. Um, so with you not seeming to, to have the same success prior to, you know, to the weight loss, how did that pressure factor into you gaining weight again? I, I, I went and did, um, the Wolf of Wall Street, and then another movie. Uh, Jesus, I'm blanking on what the other movie was called. It was with Jonah Hill and James Franco. True story. And I did those two movies kind of back to back in New York. And I and I was lifting weights and just being really. Uh, I was doing keto, but like this kind of like accidentally low calorie keto because I noticed that I wouldn't lose weight unless I was uh, on top of restricting carbohydrates, also restricting food. And I in this movie and going like, I don't, people don't know who I am at this size. I'm oddly uncomfortable and I'm just, I'm just kind of sick of it. I'm going to take a dieting and, and just eat. And, uh, you know, and I did. And then did the role start again then when when you got bigger? I wouldn't I don't know if they start again. I did a, I did I did I did a job that has proven to be my favorite job of all time called uh, Chance, a television show called Chance um with Hugh Laurie and uh and I was bigger then and I certainly wouldn't have gotten that job if I hadn't gained some weight. Right. So then, you know, now we're talking you're 260, you're definitely into you know, into the weightlifting side. Tell me about that second kind of push back to a weight that you wanted to be, that you felt healthy at. Well, at the at the end of the first season of Chance, I tore my bicep and had to get surgery and then had that whole conversation with my wife where she was like, look, I don't care, but I don't want you to have to go into the hospital because the surgery is so much more dangerous than it has to be and um and so that was when i went like okay i'm gonna figure this out i'm gonna still be a big dude but i'm gonna be a fit healthy big dude and i started doing keto again but i was kind of watching um and i was losing weight um and i started tracking my um lean body mass through DEXA scans. And I noticed that, you know, 40, sometimes 50% of my weight loss was in lean body mass. And I wasn't happy with that. And so I, I got really into nutrition and, and like actually looked at bodybuilders because, you know, bodybuilders have to lose just fat and retain all the, the muscle that they've worked so hard for. And I basically went on to a, a bodybuilder diet. But, you know, I found that really any of these diets work. But if you want to, like, target fat loss, it, you got to be a little bit more specific than just restricting food. Yeah, well, I think there's another um, you know, misconception out there. You know, what you said with, with losing just mass in general, that, that if you have lean muscle mass that is going to raise your metabolism is going to raise the demand therefore it's going to allow you to burn more fat yeah that's right i mean that's part of it i certainly get to eat more 
uh, today than I did at 200 pounds by a lot. Now, you, you mentioned trying all you know, different type, types of diets, and I think that's very important. I think that one of the issues that, again, our generation had was that you go on you know, QVC or whatever version in whatever country there was, and be like, oh, this is the diet you need, and buy my 12 DVD set, or you know, even better, I'll send you the food myself in a box. Um, what did you find nutritionally ultimately was the right choice for you personally? Um, nutritionally for me, high protein, moderate carb, low fat is kind of the state that I'm most comfortable at that I've even gotten to a point where on like maintenance, I don't even have to like think too hard or measure too diligently. If I'm going to eat something that's not a, a regular part of my diet, I might measure it or, or you know, have to look up its, its nutritional values. But for maintenance, I've kind of gotten to a place where I can maintain that. And for cutting, I, I get a lot more strict. Um, but that, that diet, I feel great. I have energy in the gym. I lose weight when I need to, I maintain when I need to. So it, it has become something that is a lot easier to do I never really tried to maintain my weight with keto. I often was maintaining my weight on keto, which was depressing because I was only ever doing keto trying to lose weight. Um, and I, I just didn't, I just, you know, for a long time I was within that kind of um, dogmatic diet culture of like you find a diet and you start to espouse that it's the only diet that works and you believe that carbs are poisoning people or or whatever it might be i've done literally every diet and i've been convinced all the time that that's the only diet that works and it just I, today i think it's all bs i think all of those diets work the there's uh, principle underlying that is thermogenesis and and if if you're eating in a caloric deficit you're going to lose weight and if you arrive at that caloric deficit because you've removed carbs or you've moved, removed everything but meat or you're a vegan or you're you know drinking apple cider vinegar lemonade drinks then you're going to lose weight and if you're eating you know, 5,000 calories worth of bacon every day, it, when your body is depleted of carbohydrates and no longer holding on to the hydration that your muscles store, you're not going to lose weight anymore, you know? Yeah. Well, I've had, um, you know, a, a gamut of people on the show, um, you know, some from the vegan camp, some from, you know, the, the carnivore camp and everything in between. And I've observed, you know, other podcasts where people are like, arguing tooth and nail well this study says this and this study said this and your your eating habits are stupid and now oh, you're an asshole <laughs> and and i'm standing in the middle again looking around going but you both agree don't consume processed foods try and get clean holistically raised meat and you know all these things so there's no you're not disagreeing i mean obviously the vegans aren't agreeing on the meat side but you know the it I think where all those circles intersect, all the successful different eating philosophies, 
they all agree on several areas and that's a great place for people to start and you can put a foot in each of the you know the different realms if you want to go plant-based for a while or whatever it is but start with just looking at the things that everyone agrees you know we we probably shouldn't be eating vegetables that are covered in chemicals you probably shouldn't be in meat if you are they're pumped full of hormones and antibiotics just to keep these sick animals alive long enough to slaughter them yeah i i agree with all of that my fear is that I don't want to ostracize anybody from the idea. I don't want to create a gateway for people who want to lose weight or get healthy. And I think that, and this might not even be what you're saying, but in Los Angeles, we certainly have a culture where like the, the health food stores, quote unquote, health food stores are so astronomically expensive compared to the normal stores. I think that like the, the basic of what you're saying is like, don't eat stuff that's got a lot of ingredients. And that's pretty simple. Like meat, like a steak has one ingredient, it's steak, it's beef, right? And uh, uh, an apple, that's the ingredient, it's an apple. Um, once you start to get into highly processed food with a lot of ingredients, yeah, it's a weird thing. But I, I worry that somebody, I don't, I don't think there has to be a monetary component to getting healthy. And I, I think that certainly it is cheaper to eat processed foods. And so there is that abundance out there, but I think you can find that it doesn't have to cost a lot of money to be healthy. Yeah. And it's interesting your perspective, because what I, I find two reactions depending on which city the person's uh, sitting in. So I, you know, I'm, I'm of the camp that actually you can eat equally as healthy for the same amount of money, if not cheaper. But I'm sitting in Ocala, central of Florida, where we're surrounded by farmland. So I can go right. to a farmer's market, buy, you know, relatively clean food. Um, and, and it's comparable, if not cheaper than the shitty processed food. However, if you're in the middle of New York City, in the middle of LA, middle of London, that might be a slightly different dynamic. But I'm not in any way, shape or form saying Whole Foods is the way you should go because that's a middleman that's taking a big old chunk. But I hope yeah. that you said, I hope one day an apple will just be an apple again, not an apple covered in God knows what pesticide. And I think that, you know, the steak will be back to a cow roaming the fields instead of being jammed in a in an industrial, you know, complex somewhere. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I, uh, I the, the idea that there used to be hundreds of thousands of meat processing plants that were kind of local, and now there's like a handful of them owned by four companies. And, you know, because of that, the, yeah, it, it, it becomes this depressingly massive industry that you lose the idea that you could even be eating biodiverse foods from a farm that's kind of harmonious with nature. That said, yes, Los Angeles, there's even, they, 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 they've, they've kicked the piss out of Whole Foods by creating a store called Air One that, that is like the Rodeo Drive of Whole Foods. And, and I just go like, you know, all these wealthy people who are drinking, you know, artisanal water captured at the source and, you know, are, are just utterly consumed with, with the idea that, you know, uh, they're 
their chickens got a massage before they were killed, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. I, I, I just don't want to create any kind of an obstacle for people because, you know, it's easy. I'm an actor. I could just go like I had my food prepared by somebody and brought to me and I have a trainer that's working me out. And that none of that's true. And I don't want to create some situation where, you know, some kid who's who's eating government cheese feels like he has no escape route yeah well i had um joel salatin on do you know who that is uh-uh. so he if you watch food inc and forks over knives he's the kind of quirky looking farmer that has the overalls and the floppy hat but he's a, a, i mean he's written numerous books he talks all over the world um but he has a you know just a, a i say holistic he has an original farm and the farms the way we used to hundreds of years ago where he rotates his his cattle through the different pastures then the pigs follow them and then the chickens peck you know the the worms following them the grass grows you know like a foot long so just just the way nature's supposed to be and he you know we had a great talk about this covid thing and he's saying just like you mentioned you know if you have only four processing plant or plant companies in the nation and and these conditions that these animals are in well you're you know you're setting an environment that creates some of these horrendous bacteria and viruses now you've got all these workers that are shoulder to shoulder processing and then when they have some sort of infection that entire system closes down you know yeah. so i think we should be subsidizing back to the local farmers and if you have an la or new york then the surrounding you know either states or counties can then produce more and send them into the city so they can also access that but the fact that like you said there's a class system on the quality of our food is completely unacceptable yeah it's not good i and you know there's like even the ideas of efficiency there's a, a great book called anti-fragile and and it's got some some concepts that are so profound and you know, the idea is that we are anti-fragile and we actually do better when when we come up against something that pushes back a little bit. And so if we create some system for efficiency, the system actually becomes quite fragile and that's not good. So at the end of the day, you have COVID come through and you actually see hunger which in a nation of obese people for the first time in however many decades, we have people who are hungry and they're waiting online for food in America where we throw away some ghastly percentage of our food. So it's like none of these systems are ready to take on and deal with anything actually that's going to push back against them and and yeah obviously the the biodiverse farm is a much more rational way to go and and i i assume there are probably a lot of people who would be interested in in doing that as their job but you're kind of incapable of doing that because the regulations set up are against you they're for the four massive companies who are kind of controlling all of this and and uh, you know i even read a story recently where they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of pigs and and then just buried them because there was no processing plant because the processing plant was closed because of covid yeah well exactly and you know you said about just just the enjoyment of a career i mean i grew up on a farm you know until i was uh, 18 19 and it wasn't a you know a ranch it was a horse farm and that was a vet but um you know it's the most amazing childhood I and mean, it really was and to think that someone could either a 
work in a farm, you know, and, and, you know, just slaughter whatever needs to be slaughtered from that particular place. And I know Joel does a lot of his chicken processing even in the outside. It's more like a lean-to than a building um, versus standing in a factory surrounded by, you know, as he puts it, I mean, the, even the dust itself, all, all the... Yeah, the the particles from all the different processes, how unhealthy that is. And you just think from a humanity point of view, supporting a local community where it doesn't have to be shipped thousands of miles and, and creating a much more resilient infrastructure, it makes sense on every single level. The only thing it doesn't do is make a very few amount of people very wealthy. Right. Yeah. It's a tricky spot. It's a tricky spot, but I, I do, I do think that it is possible to, uh, to get leaner without having to be wealthy to do it. Yeah. It's maybe, maybe not as easy, but it's possible. Right. Well, transitioning a little bit because the way I view podcasts, I think is, is a hugely empowering, you know, medium and listening to Joe Rogan and, um, uh, Tim Ferriss and some of the ones that really turn me on to him, it makes me realize how it circumnavigates all the filters. Like when all this bullshit is being played on the TV at the moment about COVID and then I'm listening to you talking, was it your brother-in-law you were chatting to? The uh, epidemiologist? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So there we go. You know, so you get this common sense middle and I made a, a very concerted effort to seek out guests that already had or some new ones to put common sense, middle of the road, educated information out there. So tell me about your journey into becoming a podcaster. Uh, my buddy, Kevin Connolly, uh, him and I were getting on a plane to go to on a trip to, uh, I, I think, Japan or something like that about 10 years ago. And maybe not quite 10 years ago, maybe six years ago. And, uh, and he said to me, what are you going to do for 14 hours? And I said, I'm going to listen to this historical podcast on the Mongolian empire. And he was like, what, what is that? And he had never heard of a podcast before. And I, I showed him, uh, the, the hardcore history, um, podcast and I downloaded the podcast app for him and he wound up listening to it on the flight, the whole thing. And, and then got off the plane and, and re-listened to it during our trip in Japan you know, anytime we got in a car, he was listening to that. And, and he was utterly fascinated that that was just free on an app. And, uh, you know, cut to a few years later, and he's like obsessed with podcasts and tells me he's going to build a podcasting studio and says to me, like, please come and podcast. And, and you know, we have these kind of uh, group texts chains where all our friends are on uh, texting things. And, and I, of course, am a contrarian and, 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 you know, I, 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 I find about as much, um, I, I find that professional wrestling has more truth than, than any politic, politic, political position or, or political camp or anything. And, and I'm not even like a fan of professional wrestling. And so I'm always just instigating shit on these on these text chains and and like and i'm not really that bad at it either and and kevin was like please do that on a podcast and i said are you crazy bro i'm an, i'm not gonna go get myself canceled from hollywood because it comes out that i think voting is a joke or something like that and uh 
and and he kept after me like please do a podcast please do a podcast and and finally I said you know I, I would be willing to do one on health and fitness because you know I I, I do that every day and I, I've actually read a fair amount about it and I'm interested in it and I, there's lots of people I'd love to talk to about it and and at first he was like, no, that's boring. I want to hear you get into fights with people uh, philosophically or politically or something like that. And I was just like, I'm just never going to do that. It's not even worth it because I don't even feel that my values and morals apply to anyone else. They're strictly my position. Uh, they're not something I'm ever trying to convince anybody of. Um, and so finally he was like, okay, just do your health thing. And, and, and it's been successful. So so I'm having fun with it. Uh, well, I think what really struck me, you interviewed uh, Jean Gord, um, and I had him on the show as well, Obese to Beast on um, Instagram. And he was, you know, kind of downplaying. I know you do the same kind of disclaimer on yours too. Well, I'm not, an, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but I think that's just it. I have had way more um, response from firefighters, police officers, you know, members of the military, who tell their powerful, powerful story of, you know, depression, addiction, you know, near suicide, whatever it was, than I ever have from a psychology talk, a psychologist talking about it. You know, those personal stories are very powerful. So just because, you know, you're not an elite trainer or, you know, a cardiologist, um, I, th I think that's actually a plus. Now to be, you know, to have lost weight, but not really understand the process is one thing, but I think, People like you and John that have actually been through it, that have stumbled, you know, that have, that have, you know, lost weight, gained weight, lost weight, whatever it was, even with you being honest with the addiction side as well, there is so much more value than being talked at by a quote unquote expert. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. And, and, and I love to talk about it. You know, it's again, I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm not. I'm not even trying to say like people should lose weight, but I can recognize that some people want to and feel like it's impossible. And so I am willing to be an example of the possibility of it and, and have conversations with people who have gone through it and have different points of view on how it can be done. Because who knows if like, I don't think my diet is certainly right for everybody. It's not like it's only right for me because I've really mastered setting goals for myself. And, and I think that's really important too, and often overlooked Be on day one, when I'm 500 pounds, I certainly didn't have the same goals that I have today. I just needed to lose weight. And so I think the diet I did then, which was a liquid diet was perfectly valid. I wouldn't do that today. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's the thing. If, if you're, for example, a firefighter that's found themselves deconditioned, which happens a lot, and I try and be very, uh, very fair, I guess, to present the ownership side, but also the, the environmental side. There are many, many elements of the first responder, the shifts and the sleep deprivation and, you know, the knock-on effect on the hormonal system that really do create an environment for failure when it comes to their own health. And it really takes a lot of work for us to, to, to stay on top of that. But I think, you know, listening to you and let's say John and let's say two, three other people, now you can collate all those stories and then you can start finding again where those lines intersect that you think will be applicable to you and find your own, you know, person X journey to experimentation. Because just like you said, it might be the third, fourth, fifth combination of this exercise and this 
kind of eating philosophy that finally works for you. Yeah, exactly. And and allowing ourselves to figure that out. That, but that's the other problem I have with the kind of um, the camps that we see diets in today. Because like if again, if you have if you if you tell somebody this is the only or this is the best way to do something and they don't have success with that, what is the motivation to try the the worst way to do it? Do you know what I mean? Or or not the best way? If there's one way to do something, then you just do that. But if if it's clearly doesn't work for everybody, then it's not the only way to do it. Yeah, exactly. And they say that the only the only um exercise that works is the one you stick to i mean that's a very yeah. very true thing so you know like you said before with with hiking with cycling with with weight training now whatever you find exciting find that find a way for that to work for you and it might change like you said you might do crossfit love it and then you know transition to something else i mean who knows what it is but if you begrudge the way you eat or you begrudge the way you exercise it's not going to last that's exactly it. Yeah, I, I I did try CrossFit. I I just think I'm a little bit too old, or I I did too much damage to my knees. Yeah, well, I've I've had a lot of people from there. I've I've done it for 14 years now, um, but it's totally coach and ego specific, you know. And I don't mean that to pick on the coaches or ourselves, but it is a great way of fostering resilience, especially for tactical professions because it does take you to a pretty horrific place when you do you know when you are able to sensibly up the intensity however if you are not guided the right way if you are not suppressed until you address imbalances in the body it absolutely can be an environment where you can get hurt if you're not led the right way yeah yeah right well i want to transition to one other area because i I think your perspective would be quite interesting and then go to some closing questions but having done american history x which obviously addressed the uh the element of white supremacy and then remember the titans which is you know i would say kind of the polar opposite even if it's a slightly disnified version of the story what is your perspective on the racial tensions at the moment are they as bad as we're being told and then you know if if there's anything you have identified that we should do better as a society in general it's a really, really interesting time. Um, when I was a teenager, I was really, really into, I don't know what wave it was, but some wave of ska in the late 80s, early 90s in Los Angeles. And, you know, we were, from what I could see, the only group of people who were uh, – overtly anti-racist and would go and seek out the Nazis in Orange County and have fights with them. And, and I, and, and so like getting to do movies that, that talked about this, which I thought was a real problem um, and address it in that way meant the world to me. We find ourselves uh, uh, today um, where we have Richard Spencer, an an avowed white nationalist, you know, an overt racist, and uh, Robin DiAngelo, who wrote the book White Fragility, largely saying the same thing. And so uh, 
the, the idea of what a racist is today, like, I don't even know. Like, if it's a dude who is screaming, you know, racial epitaphs, yeah, okay. Or a guy saying, like, I'm a racist. Yeah, I'm not down with that guy. But if it's everyone, which is, I think, Robin D'Angelo's point and Richard Spencer's point, you know, these two extremes kind of wound up in the same place. I go like, I don't even know what you guys are talking about. You know, like I, I'm not down with essentialism. The whole point is to be anti-essentialism. And, and it, I feel like I'm getting the message that we cannot escape that essentialism, that, that um, our, our skin or some attribute about ourselves is the most meaningful or can tell us everything we need to know about a person. I'm in total disagreement with that. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do better. I think you just got to be decent to everyone and kind to everyone and like, and, and advocate against um, police brutality and, 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 and advocate for kind of uh, communal responsibility. And, you know, uh, I see a very, very small group who's screaming to defund the police. And then I see instances where the police are going like, okay, we're not going to do anything. And the problem is that the majority of the people don't realize that they're no longer going to be protected by the police. And in my ideal utopian i go like yeah there would be no law and no police and 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 everybody would be responsible for themselves but like everybody's got to agree on that otherwise you have people who are going to get utterly run over by other people and and so i look around and i just go like you know we have uh, homicides getting out of control in new york uh, and they, they've been on the rise and they were like so low for so long. And, and, uh, people who are advocating for democracy without realizing that we've arrived in this place today because of democracy. And so what are we doing now where it's just the loudest voices are now in control versus the majority of the people, um, I don't, I don't, I don't have a solution to any of this. It doesn't seem good. I don't think it's racial. I think it's closer to a class problem than it is to a race problem. Yeah, and it's been so interesting to to watch, you know, from my perspective within the first responder profession, knowing, you know, the the majority of police fire, you know, whatever uniform personnel you want to put in that box, leave their families every day leave their families to go and protect complete strangers. And these people that we're seeing abusing that power, abusing that uniform, the good police officer of the world don't want those pieces of shit in their department. They don't want to work with them. You know, they, they, they're a disgrace. And if it's a department where lack of training, lack of accountability, shitty hiring practices have contributed to that, then yes, we as a profession nationally need to address that. But I think on the other side, you know, listen to people like Morgan Freeman saying we need to stop defining each other by color. And there's, I forget her name, but there's a, um, a female, an older lady who's a, I think she's a psychologist, but she talks about when you look at the history of, of when we even defined ourselves at race, 
I believe it goes back to the kind of Spanish Inquisition times, if I'm not mistaken. So that whole concept, like, I mean, you hit it the nail on the head. It's created this 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 facade of division. And then you've got these squeaky wheels on each side that are shaking the bush. And once again, in the middle, everyone else is suffering. Police officers yeah. that sacrifice their lives for people of all colors and creeds are being, you know, held over the coals. And then... Innocent members of community are getting either their livelihoods burnt down in riots or now are victims of, of violence because of the pushback from law enforcement. Yeah, I, I, I cannot know the experience of another person. All I can know is my experience and I can try very hard, which I, which I find I, I do put effort into trying to empathize with and understand other perspectives. But I, I don't at the end of the day kid myself that I can know what they are, but I try. But I know that there was an aspect of my physical self that I felt was less than the rest of people. And, and it inhibited me uh, in my life. Today, I still feel um, introverted physically about myself and how I fit into the world. But I don't for a second think that that can change by uh, society or by telling people to change how they view me. The only way that that changes is by me changing my mind about my personal worth in society. Um, and again, we're talking about uh, physical attributes that I had the power to change. So that's that's a knock in in the the direction of like again, this is this is not an immutable characteristic. Um, I, I just I don't I don't think that these things you know clearly biologically they don't matter. And so the fact that we're putting so much emphasis on them today from literally both sides to me feels like a step backwards yeah now what's interesting to me and i talk about this a lot is you know there's again there's this this kind of uh facade once again that the person in the governmental building at the top of whichever country you're listening to is going to change your country and there's a real disconnect from the responsibility of each one of us in our communities to walk outside our front door and do something good in the world. Now, I was very fortunate to find a profession where I was able to do good in the world, but I was also paid to do that. With the podcast, and I've just finished a book as well, which I hope is going to have you know some sort of impact, these are things, especially the podcast, just like you mentioned, that are free. Like you, you put it together and anyone with access to the internet on planet Earth can glean from the incre incredible men and women that I've been lucky enough to have on the show that you've had now. And many of the people that have been through kind of mental challenges, that altruism, that feeling of giving back, that waking up with a purpose, you know, greater than yourself also has a very healing element to it. Have you kind of experienced almost like your personal growth from realizing now the impact that your podcast is having on the, you know, the audience? Yeah, certainly. There, there's, I was very hesitant to talk about this. And in 2011 or 12, 
uh, I had some paparazzi follow me around on a bike and take pictures. And there were some stories about how terrible I looked having lost weight and like loose skin and the downsides of weight loss and all of this. And at that point I was like, fuck it. Sorry, probably shouldn't be swearing. I was like, no, you can, (laughs) you can on here. (laughs) I I was like, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to participate in it. You guys can say whatever you want. And I'm just not, you, you know, I'll just be an object to you. Um, and this time around, I controlled the initial photographs that were public and, uh, and then I controlled what was said about it through the podcast. And I found through doing it, I feel more and more open and relaxed, uh, about discussing it. I think two things, it's made me view it in a different way, almost not totally different. Like I haven't done any about faces but i can see it more broadly or more externally and also it's i think it's something that will help keep me accountable you know um when it's just me and my family then i only have to be accountable to myself and my family but having an audience where i'm discussing these things i am now some to some degree accountable to them too yeah, no, I agree completely. I think you have to walk the walk. And when you put it out there publicly, it's like, well, shit, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of held to that now. But that's also an element of walking the walk. And I think that, you know, you're not up there to be a quote unquote inspiration. But when you're transparent, when you're honest, when you're showing that it was a roller coaster ride up and down, um, you know, that's what people connect to because that linear line that we talked about before, sorry, it's my German shepherd in the background. Hey, um, that linear line that we, uh, you know, that we talked about before doesn't exist, you know, so the, it, the one of the cancers of society is, you know, we talk about the paparazzi, but also is, is the consumer. The reason why those shitty magazines are there at the checkout of the grocery stores is because people are still buying them. So that to me, again, is that community thing. People need to put that shit down, turn on a podcast, whether it's, you know, a history podcast or a, a fitness one like, you know, American Glutton or whatever it is. But we have to push that entire change and get away from the Instagram shaming two-dimensional bullshit and support the people with real life stories because that's how we change the world, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'm going to transition to some closing questions. I know we're getting close to the time. Um, you mentioned Anti-Fragile. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? Oh, I mean, as far as uh, diet goes, I, I think the, my two favorite, you know, there was like Adele Davis 30, 40 years ago who was, who was great and interesting. But as we've gotten so much more precise and so much more scientific, and there's two dudes who are out there today writing books. One is Mike Isratel, and and my favorite by him is Renaissance Diet 2.0. And then there is Lane Norton, who wrote uh, Fat Loss for Life. And those two books are fantastic. Um, You know, I I read a lot. So like science fiction, I just read The Three-Body Problem, which is three books um, by a, a Chinese dude. You know, and I mean, like properly, they were written in China, and so it's a whole different perspective on science fiction, and and those are great books, and yeah, anti fragile, I like those are those are, those are my book recommendations for today. Excellent. What about movies? Favorite movies and or documentaries? Um, 
my favorite movie is, I don't know, probably something like Lawrence of Arabia or Once Upon a Time in, a, in, a, in America um, or like The Godfather Part Two. I love those big, epic, really long movies. Uh, favorite documentary? <sighs> I don't know, dude. I've been watching Generation Iron a lot lately. <laughs> Brilliant. It's a good movie, too. All right. What about um, a guest? Is there someone that you recommend to come on this podcast to talk to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? And it doesn't have to be anyone connected with those professions. I, I would suggest a guy named Tom Kyer. I've had him on my show twice. He is uh, he, he, he is just a, an awesome, awesome dude. In fact, I played a character inspired by him on the television show chance and he's kind of um you know my my mentor in a lot of in a lot of ways in a lot of areas he's a badass dude and and i think he'd be a great fit excellent thank you so much for that suggestion um all right so the last one before we make sure everyone knows how to find the podcast and reach out to you online what do you do to decompress uh, I lay in bed. I watch TV. I don't have a lot of time to do that. I, I like to go to the beach with my kids or go on a walk outside with my wife. Fantastic. And do you have any sort of uh, mental practice or, or meditation? No, I, I have a buddy who's into that and I'll occasionally go over and do that with him. And I've tried the Wim Hof uh, breathing method, which I like a lot, but no, I, I, I like to get out of my head. Um, as much as possible. Brilliant. Now, just yeah. just just when you were on the bike, did you find yourself getting out of your head there? Because I mean, that's that's eight hours is a long time. Yeah, I I would find myself too in my head if I didn't have a one ear pod in and have some music on. And when I had a little bit of music and and you know, I always wore it in the ear away from traffic and and going up a hill. Yeah, that was like totally meditative and you know just the cadence when you're pedaling it would become very meditative brilliant all right so then for everyone listening first the american glutton how can they find the podcast it's on all the podcasting apps i i have an apple phone so i i get it through apple but i think it's on spotify and and all those I, I don't know all the apps to be honest with you but you can get it on on any major podcasting app brilliant and even the website when you google american glutton whatever program you use for that is very very user friendly that's what i've been listening to it through oh great yeah i didn't even know you could listen to it on our website yeah i believe so i think that's what i've been listening to so um all right and then as far as online if you want to follow you or reach out what's the best way on Instagram, I'm Ethan Suplee, and on Twitter, I'm Ethan Suplee. Brilliant. Well, Ethan, I want to say again, thank you so much. I mean, you were so generous to to kind of reach out and allow me to connect with you. But your your story is powerful, and your story is real. It's human, and I think that a lot of people listening, seeing people like yourself that have you know decided to not just decide that's the wrong word have have created an environment for them to transition from one you know, health state to another is extremely powerful. And it's something that everyone needs at the moment. So I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.